Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes, and this week we have got two just absolutely sterling guests, two festival alumni who we admired and enjoyed so very much when they visited Wigtown that we've tracked them down and had another little chat with them during this funny time. We've got Kevin Barry, who's the author of several novels and short story collections, most recently Nightbook to Tangier, which was longlisted for the Booker Prize and is an absolutely, you know, menacing, dark, heart-icky, beautiful read. And we talked to him a little bit about that and a little bit about his forthcoming book. But first, we talked to poet Nadine Aisha Jessett. Nadine's collection of poetry, Let Me Tell You This, came out in 2019 from 404 Inc. when she also visited the festival. Jackie Kay said of her work, she's a fearless poet who boldly takes on difficult themes like gender-based violence, reasserting her right to speak out about those things that are often hidden from view. I started off by asking Nadine about her experience of lockdown. I don't know if I've had a slightly unique experience of lockdown because I was, so I was on the Outriders project with the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I left the UK at like two in the morning on the 1st of February or something. In mid sort of 6th, 7th March, I was in Tanzania on my journey with Sitsi Dangaremga. And then towards mid-March, you know, the world started changing and the book festival were like actually we think we're going to have to bring you back early and flights were getting cancelled and you know it was all it was all very dramatic so I kind of arrived back in the UK six weeks earlier than I'd planned to be back in the UK so you know no food in the house you know we made the decision on the Tuesday and I was back on the Friday and then a day later we went straight into lockdown I think I've had I had an unusual experience in that sense but I think you know I'm lucky that I got to have an epic adventure and then lockdown, I guess, has been a time of stillness, while at the same time, obviously, a time of sort of global grief as well. Could you say more about, because I think some of our listeners will maybe be aware of Outriders Africa, but if you could just say more about what that project is, what it's set out to do, the writer you were paired with, just a little bit more yeah. info. So Outriders Africa, it's... The book festival did their first Outriders two years ago, which was in the Americas. Two years later, they wanted to do Outriders Africa. And of course, when you plan a global project, that's when a pandemic strikes. (laughs) And they basically chose and paired 10 writers to go on journeys together. The journey that I was doing with my partner, Sitsi Dangaremga, um, so she wrote Nervous Conditions. She won the Commonwealth Writers' Prize the year I was born. She's a Zimbabwean author. And for me, because all of my father's family are from Zimbabwe, that was especially resonant. We were to go on a journey together for three weeks. And then outside of that time, Southern Africa, in particular South Africa and Zimbabwe, have been such a huge part of my childhood, my heritage, my cultural frames of reference are also specific to that part of the world that I decided to take a full three months. And I said, I'm going to take a full three months, took February, March, April, I'm going to go and see my family and stay with my aunties. And so I got half of that and I got half of my journey with Sitsi. And yeah, and then everything changed. Before all the pandemic stuff, you know, what were your, I guess, hopes, apart from seeing family and reconnecting there, but more your hopes for your writing and for that relationship with Sitsi? What did you intend to come out of that for you and your work? You know, I found this in many different parts of my life that whenever I've returned back to, I guess, my other homeland, you know, if the UK is the motherland, then, you know, Zimbabwe and South Africa are the fatherland. And whenever I go back, it's sort of like, you know, I put my feet on the ground and I just feel everything in me be energised and grounded. And it's almost like when you put your phone on charge, you know, and the little battery lights up and it's like, yes. And so for me, that personal experience I knew would be creatively enriching, you know, as someone who writes 
so personally. I knew that anything that would bring me that connection with self in a personal level would also then translate into my writing. But, you know, at the start of it, I was doing a lot of things in Cape Town and I went for the first time, I guess, as a writer. You know, whenever I've gone before, I've gone as a niece or a daughter or a cousin, you know, and I was going as a writer in my own right. And I did an event with an um, agency called Woman's Zone there, which is like the Glasgow Women's Library, Cape Town version, you know, all there for the, the women of Cape Town. And it was just so wonderful to be welcomed into a place that's part of my ancestry and part of who I am as a writer, you know, as that, that role that I've made for myself was so enriching. And, you know, when I came back to the UK, I still felt like I had all of those women and, and all of those ancestors at my back. And that was so lovely. And then with my journey with Sitsi, Sitsi was really keen to trace the funeral route of David Livingston. So Jacob Tuma and Abdullah Susie carried Livingston's body alongside lots of other people. And Patina Gapper has written a book about this called Out of Darkness, Shining Light, and carried his body from Zambia right through to Bagamoyo in Tanzania. It took them, I think, easily nine months. And we were going to do it in three weeks, trace this funeral route. So that was Sitsi's idea. That was what Sitsi wanted to do. And I thought to me as a poet when she suggested it I was thinking there's something for me about carrying bodies the metaphorical interpretation and my mission I guess for outriders was thinking about ancestry and tracing ancestors and so I was thinking about the bodies that I carry within me I guess but also the bodies of work the bodies of stories you know in the context of southern Africa so much stuff is not passed down or not recorded properly in official records some stuff is but a lot is erased as well and so the way that people were passed down to me and that I was able to learn of them was through stories so that was what I was thinking about. I want to circle back to your first collection of poetry. Uh, Let me tell you this. Tell us about the intentions for that work then. Was that wrapped up in kind of reclaiming narratives, sharing stories that hadn't been heard before? Let me tell you, this started really with the poetry pamphlet that came before it still. And that really just came out of me writing down the things that I needed to write for myself. You know, I would say pretty much all of Let Me Tell You This was poems that I wrote for myself and experiences that I needed to articulate. You know, they say the personal is political. And I guess for me, the personal things that I was writing about and the things that were closest to the surface are also political because of the nature of, you know, racism. It's not an abstract idea. It's something that can cause real trauma in people's lives. And it's something that's also a part of people's real lived experiences. And for me, a lot of these big political words that we use, you know, we say, oh, let's talk about racism in policy and and gender-based violence. And But for me, these were these were also part of my life. And so my personal way of navigating them was that I was like, you know, I need to not just be holding all of this stuff in my head. I need to actually get it out for myself. And then I guess one thing led to another. And and there you have it. I have a book covered in gold foil, (laughs) which is really beautiful. But I think it was definitely a journey. And I think it's part of a journey that's wrapped up maybe in imposter syndrome and maybe in us not knowing our own power, but a journey of me thinking, okay, these are poems that I wrote for me and putting them out there. And then once they get out there, you suddenly get this response from the audience where people are like, thank you so much for saying that because I feel it too. And thank you so much for saying that because I I think other people need to know this. And it's certainly, it's a leap realising that your own words are bigger than you. You spoke there about the book being beautiful and it is very beautiful, both outside and very much inside. But in one of the poems, I think it's Threads, there's this idea of beauty and utility, it being beautiful and useful. Can you say a little bit more about how you get that balance? And you know what? I love that line and I'm so glad you picked up on it because I come back to it often and think, is this what you're trying to do with your writing? Are you trying to make something that is both beautiful and useful from tangled yarn and threads, you know, from all these different feelings and emotions, I guess, inside me and, and make something that has that beauty, I guess, as an artist 
person in terms of what feels good to write, you know, and to challenge myself, but that's also useful to the world, that's doing something that has a purpose. But I think there are so many broad, different definitions of what makes something useful. For example, I always going on about Mary Oliver and how much I love, love, love her poetry. And I think someone on the outside might say, oh, but they're poems that are about walking through the woods and, and loving trees and you know, and you write these poems that are about calling out racism very explicitly. And, you know, they might not make the link between why some of my favourite poem would be Mary Oliver's, but I think both of them hold something that help people reach towards healing and connection. And for me, like Mary Oliver's stuff helps me connect to myself, I guess, and find a sort of sense of peace or understanding, which gives me resilience to then do the, the difficult work in the world. Yeah, I mean, that sense of writing first for yourself and then reaching a reader and that the personal and the political. I've read a lovely piece online that you've written about this, about using vulnerability or feeling vulnerable. Is there a way of dealing with that vulnerability when the work is in the world? I think it's definitely a journey. And I think it's interesting the different ways we engage with that vulnerability depending on where we are, because I think sometimes as well, you know, like last year, I was doing so many events for Let Me Tell You This and that was, it was so wonderful and I'm so glad, especially, you know, looking at the context for debut authors this year, like I'm so glad I got to do so many events. But I think it also meant that because I was on stage so much that when it came to writing new work, I wasn't in a space to, I guess, be as vulnerable as where some of the truth of my work comes from because I was so present in a performance space, you know, and I think for me, that vulnerability has to be first there, just you and yourself and and not with any idea of anyone else who's a viewer. I guess my first journey in it was when my first pamphlet still came out in 2016. And I remember like putting it out into the world and having a beautiful launch. And then the next morning saying to my partner at the time, like, what have I done? I've put these personal poems out. Oh gosh, oh no. And there was a quote from Audre Lorde that really got me through that, which is the source of our vulnerability is also the source of our greatest strength. I really love that. I really love this idea that our vulnerability is, is strength. But I also think that the vulnerable thing within us by naming them and sort of saying them we connect to ourselves but we can connect to other people as well mm. just that, that Audrey Lord phrase there it's something quite ludic about that and it reminded me of you know your poem about age 29, 29. There's a, and there's a real play there's a real turn in there and, and it leads me to I wanted to ask you just about the kind of playfulness and the musicality in, in your work and basically what comes first for you are you editing with your ear or with your eye how do you build those little machines I will always read a poem out loud after I've written it. If it doesn't feel instinctively right to me, then I'll know it's not. And that instinct is rhythmic, but it's also instinctive. And I don't know if that comes from me sort of feeling that my poetry is on that bridge between page and spoken word, you know, that actually there's so much that comes from it in the vocal telling of it, or if it's just part of who I am as a person, how I talk, you know, I don't know if it's if it's maybe a legacy of having a Northern English mother and a Zimbabwean father, you know, and there's so much rhythm in both of those like languages and dialects, you know. Um, but for me, the, the rhythm is instinctive and it's important. If a poem doesn't have that instinctive gut feeling that the rhythm is right, then I will know I need to keep going back to it. I did want to ask you just a little bit about what you're working on now, because I think you are working on something else, something new. Is that right? Yes. And I'm very much in love with it, which is really a nice place to be. Can you say a little bit more about it? Would you would you feel happy to tell us a little bit more? Oh, you know me, Peggy. You know, I'll talk about vulnerability and racism till the cows come home. <laughs> if you ask me about my work in progress, I've become very coy and shy. <laughs> I think, you know, it's something that it feels very precious. I can say that it's it's prose. I've had mentoring from Kapka Kasabova with it, who wrote Border as part of my Scottish Book Trust New Writers Award. So it's 
you know, last year, I guess I was in a place with it where I was really, and it comes from what I was saying about earlier about being in such a performance place and being so conscious of the audience that I found last year, I was subconsciously feeling this pressure to write what was expected of me, I guess, politically as well. I was feeling this pressure to write something that was really explicitly political. And I knew that I needed to go back to the roots of how I wrote, let me tell you this, and to know that what I write from the personal is automatically going to be political. But, you know, it's about the truth of that personal that I needed to channel. And in a weird way, being in lockdown, you know, coming back unexpectedly mid-March, knowing that I had deliberately not got any work planned until May. And it was the first time in my life where I've just been on my own, you know, and had that permission to write. And something about that freedom of there being no audience, nobody needing me to put a mask on, no expectation. And also about the need to process what had happened, you know, just that longing for I was meant to be, after my journey with Sitsi, I was meant to be returning to my aunts. And instead I had to try and keep them with me through writing and through being on the page. And so I, I did that. And I think I will say, you know, I, nobody should feel pressured to write in lockdown. And the amount of times people were like, oh, well, it's a good time to write your novel. And I would sort of like growl like a cat, you know. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's a difficult time for everybody. But something in the isolation for me, and I'm, and I'm very privileged both, you know, globally in terms of where I'm located, but also in terms of being somebody who enjoys that isolation, you know, somebody who doesn't find it difficult, but actually enjoys it. Something in that has been a great gift for for my writing. Very, very excited for what will come, um, is all I'll say. Nadine, it's been such a pleasure. I wonder if I could just end, I guess, by just saying, you know, you've been to Wigton. I was at the event with you and the mighty Asa Aldegheri. Uh, I, I remember it fondly and well. How was Wigton for you? I like Wigtown, And actually, you know, there's um, a particular bookshop in Wigtown that has been on my mind, which is reading lasses. Every time I go to Wigtown, I love to go there and I always take my book, sit in the same chair and have a slice of chocolate violet cake. But also... I think Wigtown last year held one of my most special moments because I I think it was the only book festival that I've experienced yet where you meet up with two other authors, go on a drive in the middle of the night, swim in the sea at night and see phosphorescence. And that's what we did. We were swimming and every time we moved through the water, it was lighting up with little water fireflies around us and it was just perfect. So yeah, I will treasure that Wigtown memory. Wow, I don't know about you, but Nadine just totally transported me back to Wigtown Cakes and Phosphorescence Pass. That was so lovely. Thank you, Nadine, for joining us. It was a real treat to get to chat to you. And now we speak to Kevin Barry from home in Sligo, as I always like to say of Kevin, imagining him there in his former um, police Garda barracks. Kevin Barry is the author of three novels and two short story collections, and his awards are longer than my arm. They include the Impact Dublin Literary Award, the Goldsmiths Prize, the Sunday Times EFG Short Story Prize, and the Lannan Foundation Literary Award. And his stories and essays have appeared everywhere in New Yorker and Grant and elsewhere. But here we speak largely about two books, really. We speak about his latest novel, Nightboat to Tangier, which was an Irish number one bestseller. But we also tantalisingly touch on the book that he's got forthcoming from Canongate, which is another book of short stories, that old country music, which is due out sometime later this year. How's lockdown been for you, Kevin Barry? Where are you and what have you been up to? Well, I've been in South County Sligo on the shores of lovely Loch Arrow and I'm looking out at a reasonably pleasant afternoon after a wet morning. It's fine. Like, it's really weird. It's a very different experience of the whole lockdown thing when you're in the countryside, I think, because it just looks much as it usually does and kind of 
April and May and June. It's it's been lovely. Like this week, we've only been allowed to travel a bit further, as in I've been able to go half an hour up the road to Sligo Town, and it's very different when you go into town and you see everything closed and people go, you know, everyone masked, and it's it's a very different experience of it. Uh, here, you can kind of forget about it a little bit. Has it been a good time imaginatively for you then? Like, haven't got by the you know the news cycles and stuff. Have you have you managed to forge ahead with any new? <laughs> time will tell. I've, I like I've, I'm turning out pages, but. Jesus only knows what they're like, you know. <laughs> um, I've been, yeah, I've, I've been writing, I've been working on a few different things. One is a kind of a speculative television script. It's interesting. It, it, it's supposed to be a comedy, but it's, um, I think it's promising enough, but it's it's kind of resolutely doesn't want to be funny, <laughs> you know. Um, they're at least not in a kind of a punchline, funny, ha-ha kind of a way. So it's, it's interesting, I think, even if you're not writing directly about the kind of the time of the Great Plague or the whole virus thing, it's going to come into your work and affect it in kind of oblique ways, you know. Obviously, the way all our dreams have been affected, we've been having weird, vivid dreams. So your fiction writing comes from that same kind of unconscious place. So it's obviously going to um, dictate the kind of work that comes out i do have some happy thoughts on it i do think that possibly there'll be such a release when we get past this thing that there'll be a real surge in people's creativity and that people will really kind of want to express and and, and make new things and, and and create in the way that that has happened before you know in, in kind of the 1920s after the whole the spanish flu thing and, and after the great war that there was this mad sort of roaring 20s kind of energy that came out but this, this, something like that could well happen i think I'm going to ask you a little bit because last time we crossed paths, we were speaking about Nightbook to Tangier. And I know that, you know, you've got a new book of short stories coming from Canongate, which I'm going to ask you about. But first of all, just about Nightbook, really. You know, some people listening might have read it, some not. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that book? It's funny. Often I find with novels and, and research, the best research you can do for a novel, you don't realize it's research at the time. And for about the last 20 years, since the late 90s, every kind of winter, if I could afford to, I would escape from grey Irish skies or Scottish skies when I was living there and go to the south of Spain around January and February for just maybe, might be a few days, it might be a few weeks, it would be a couple of months sometimes. And I was just kind of got, got, really grew to love the south of Spain especially just mooching around the cities down there and then over the last couple of years kind of saying to myself well I have all this kind of Spanish texture if you like how how, how can I write a Spanish book and I couldn't figure it out until I thought well if I would just put two Irish fellas in Spain and get them talking to each other that would break the back of it so I, I had these two sort of um, gangster figures Morris and Charlie kind of wisecracking malevolent vaguely lovable gangster types from Cork City and I, I didn't know what to do with them I could hear them very vividly I thought they were great big characters but I couldn't find the form for them I think initially they tried to barrel into a couple of short stories and and destroyed them because they were too big they were too large so then I sat down one day and started trying to write it as a I had the notion of setting them down in Spain that their gangster work had been involved in the old drug trade of, of, of smuggling hashish from North Africa up to up to the west of Ireland, which was a which was a long running trade for many decades and I wrote it as a play for a couple of weeks. It quickly became apparent that it wanted to be a novel. The story kept opening out into the past. And the only way to convincingly get away with that is in a novel. The novel is such a wonderfully capacious form, really. It can go in any direction time-wise, which is much more difficult with a stage play, you know. So it, it, it kind of wrote itself pretty quickly for me. It was about a year. And it's been a belter, actually. It's, it's gone very well. Booker Prize list last year. and It was in the New York Times 
top 10 of the year which was a fantastic thing for Dover on that side so yeah so people have responded to them Morris and Charlie they're extremely on the surface extremely unlikable I was personally delighted to get them out of the house when I finished the book then you kind of start to miss them a little bit <laughs> yeah know? I just love how you speak about them like they're real fellas and actually the book would have me believe they're two old guys from the, the local pub do you know what I mean like they're really fleshy fleshed out oh, well that's good some characters are more vivid to, to me as a writer than others but I, I immediately could kind of um, see and hear these two very clearly I write a lot of double acts to the point where now I see see them coming and go oh god no not another double act but it, they really kind of demanded to be this kind of pair it's a, it was a happy experience in terms of me writing the novel it was quite quick it was like inside a year and, and the previous novel Beetlebone I'd been coming and going for it for ages for about four years felt like much more of a slog so this one it was nice to get it kind of get it out quick I mean um, I've seen I think even at a couple of places you know this idea this ham and clove for the iPhone generation you know this kind of two fellas you know Irish fellas waiting for something to happen and the inevitable kind of ghost of Beckett well that's that's just my way of getting myself compared to Beckett that's all you have to do it's you just get two Irish fellas have a wait for something and the Beckett comparisons start running in the door to you. It's marvellous. But no, of course, of course, like that, they're waiting and they're Irish. <laughs> so that that spectre is there. I'm thinking something Norman Mailer said, which is whenever two men say hello to each other in the street, one of them loses. I, I, I use that quote a lot. And I overuse it. Yeah. And like I, Irish people are, are just are like, we love to talk and we're, we're good at it. And, and we kind of love the sounds of our own voices. But at the same time, we say very little. It's always quite guarded in lots of ways. And there are always these little subtext conversations going on beneath the surface of it. It can take you a long time to figure out the true meaning of an Irish conversation, you know, up to 15 years, I would say. It can, it can take before you realise what, what he really meant or what she really meant. What draws you as a writer, though, to the, those kind of, like these kind of big hard men that don't, you know, big sad hearts? What's what's in yeah, that for I'm, a writer? I, I love genre heat, if I can put it like that. So a lot of the stuff I write, it often has elements of crime fiction or noir fiction or something like that. It will come into the work sometimes. I just like the way that kind of compels the reader and, and gives the the sensation that the pages are moving easily but then depicting for example these kind of criminal lives in a way that wouldn't normally be used on the language front as in like really going for it in terms of the prose and in that way maybe trying to elevate them above the kind of archetypal figures you'd get in in in, in a standard piece of crime fiction and trying to make something a little bit more real of them and in that way maybe kind of forgiving them a little bit i think if you can get the voices right in a piece of fiction everything else will kind of follow on from that um if you can get their voices accurately you're, you're getting their hearts and souls and, and blood and bones as well i think and in this way they're humanized i guess and 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 brought into the world in a way that that might be more forgiving than if you didn't get the voices just right. I do think a lot about my characters in terms of their physical stance as well and the way they hold themselves and the way they kind of present themselves to the world. And often I'm writing about Irish men from working class backgrounds and, and that physical stance tends to be quite defensive you know it's kind of shoulder forward and sort of kind of a, a tense hold of the, of the body physically that stance comes from hundreds of years of sort of class and history and religion and weather and god knows what you know but it's a if you can imagine how they hold themselves you, you can get an awful lot very quickly and, and Morris and Charlie are from those kind of backgrounds, but they also, by fortune and birth, come from Cork City, which has a huge level of regard for itself as a town. And so that, so they have quite a slight 
lovely kind of arrogant air to them as well, I think. Uh, so they're almost kind of princely gangsters and they, they think a lot about their shoes and they think a lot about their clothes. Actually, a funny one, one of the kind of funny things about the book is that it is given away somewhere in the book that they're only kind of like very early 50s, 51 or 52. But the way they talk, it's like dead store, you know, as if they're like late 80s. And people talk to me about these ancient gangsters. I said, but, you know, did you miss the bit that they're only like 51? <laughs> but definitely they proved to be vivid for readers anyway, which is, which is all I can ask. You've written in places before, Kevin, about your own antipathy towards, you know, you're not on social media. Has that changed for you over this period where digital, the digital world has... It's, uh, no, I, ha- I have written about that, but I mean, uh, I, like I'm, I'm online as much as anyone else, you know, it's just I don't do the kind of social media stuff. Like I have, I have very important rules, which I manage to stick to. I kind of don't go online in the morning, which leaves it clear for, for, for kind of writing time. I, I do find if I go online first thing, I, I go into that kind of flitty, impatient space in my, in my mind where we tend to go when we're online. Um, and it, it gets hard. It, it's hard then in the day to do any, any worthwhile writing. I, my first book came out in 2007, Book of Stories, which was just about the start of the whole kind of digital literary world type. And like it's done wonders for me as well. You know, people started pushing my books online and talking about them on on Twitter or whatever it is, and Goodreads and all these things, it's been really beneficial to me as a writer. I, I just have two two kind of addictive a personality in terms of things. I, I know if I opened a Twitter account, I'd be on something all day. I would just be on it too much. The internet is is an, an infinitude. It contains all things good and evil. So it's it's anything you say about it is true in a way. You know. I mean, I'm glad you've uh, you've brought the stories in. Actually, their little kingdoms was my first encounter with your good self. Uh, Declan Mead pushed it on me in Grogan's Bar in. Dublin. Dublin. Um, well, well, I think I'm what's a fine gentleman and a fine venue, f- yeah, an upstanding yeah. gentleman and pub. Um, and I think I think I'm what's called an early adopter, really. So, how do the stories then, and the the novels, the longer pieces, the the TV, right, all the different elements, how do the stories fit into that? Kind of, I guess. Um first love for me in some ways short stories they were the first things that started to work out for me on the page like in my 20s which was the 1990s uh i was still living in cork city and i was kind of operating as a freelance journalist and doing fine you know right writing for good papers and stuff like that but not not using that kind of unconscious part of my brain that you use when you're uh, writing fiction and i really wanted to and I, you know i was writing bits and getting a bit more dedicated about it and attempting a couple of terrible novels that didn't work out I'd say around the turn of the millennium, I started to look down at the page and go, you know what, tempting these short stories and going, actually, this is this is st- starting to sound a bit like me now. The stories were becoming funnier, uh, which is one of the things. I do remember vividly one day, it must be late kind of 1990s, writing some story. And I was writing this description of, of a train going across the Midlands of Ireland. And there was this long sentences that was going on pages on end with all these clauses. And it was, you know, magnificent god-given prose but i remember jumping back from the page with a start looking down going who's this guy you know this because this 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 wasn't me at at, at all you know uh, as a writer i wasn't letting whatever kind of effervescence i have as a person out onto the page and it started to come true first for me in short stories and i and i, and I started to publish them in, in in journals like the stinging fly and declan came to me and and, and said well, well we might put a collection of these together and he made it so he knew it was kind of a nervy character and he made it sound like he was going to put it out a small kind of um hand-printed pamphlet that would go around to about 17 people just so as not to panic me it, it came out in 2007 and i've been very lucky people immediately took it up 
and since then really I've been able to keep going full time um, as a fiction writer which is very unusual you know but yeah I, I, I go back to stories all the time they're very difficult I remember back in my journalism days actually interviewing uh, the great James Kelman when I was living in Scotland going over to Glasgow to, to interview him and we were talking about short stories and he said you know thing you'll find is that it's it's not easier to get the longer you do them in fact encouragement early, yeah but in fact he was right in, early on in a in a story writing career you're kind of pulling them off the threes you know there's loads of stuff it's like the band with the first album there's lots of stuff there you have a whole lifetime built up of material and you have to work harder to get them after a while i, I still attempt them all the time and i prob but i probably only managed to finish one or two stories a year now to any kind of satisfaction but they build up. So I had a second collection in, in 2012, which is actually when I showed up at Wingtown, where Dark Lies the Island had just come out. And I, I remember a Cayley in, in a distillery. I remember it well. With very kind of these very ritualized set pattern dances, which isn't my style really. I'm hard to learn rules with dancing. I'm more free jazz kind of approach um, in, in, in dancing mode. I'm improvisatory. Jeez, that's eight years ago. That's crazy. It seems like seems like three weeks ago. The festival, you know, is like all festivals gone the way of a digital a, a event this year. Of course, I it's September I, usually, isn't it? Around September, October. September, yeah. October. That's it. Because the the next collection of short stories I I saw is on its way from Canagate. You made me think there of like the third collection of short stories being like a really really fine prized malt because the the stories come so slowly so differently this is def definitely the way to think it, it was a surprise to me last year when i tried to start gather them together that i had quite a few finished since dark lies the island in 2012 i had about 18 or 19 stories in, in kind of reasonable condition and and i picked um 11 from them that kind of seemed to resonate with each other and speak to each other a little bit often on a kind of geographical basis a lot of the stories now are set around where i live in the northwest in Ireland. Uh, so a lot of them are around County Sligo and Leitrim and, and Roscommon. It's interesting, you know, that I moved here first in 2007, just after the first book came out. And it takes a while before your immediate surroundings start to work their way into, into your fiction. But most things that are right now in, in, in the short story form, more often than not, they're set generally in or around the Northwest um, and kind of responding as much as to the voices in, in the place, as much to the kind of the light and, 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 and the quality of the, the light over the very still lake waters and all that definitely comes in. I, I, I do have that kind of lyric impulse, which, which Irish writers can't seem to get away from at all. So yeah, and it's called that old country music because it just, it just a lot of the stories seem to, to have musical references and, and just this kind of, it's a little bit, I guess, like musicians pulling um, an album together, that, that old fashioned concept where you just look for the material that seems to be of a set or of a sequence and just try and arrange it. It's a lot of the fun of it, actually, is trying to arrange it. But no, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I, I love collections. Like very often you see in a writing career, a writer will publish a book of stories early on and then just go on and write novels after that. And I kind of always hate that. I always think, no, keep going, you know. If, if you're able to do them and you're good at them, keep going. And, and like it's no mistake, no accident that I think some of the very best um, story writers we've had are, are writers who, who keep going all the way through a career like Alice Munro or William Trevor or Flannery O'Connor, people who just always kept writing stories as well as anything else. Because it's a it's really weird, esoteric craft. The more you do it, the less you seem to know about it. It, it takes kind of a, a, a lifetime's kind of work really and, de and dedication to get anywhere with it. So, so I'll continue to go. I, I'm certain it won't be my last collection of stories. I'll keep going. I, I hope to do five or six of them. I hope that Kevin Barry writes short story collections forever. That old country music due out from Canongate later this year. 
Thank you so much to Kevin for joining us. Thank you to Nadine for joining us too. Thank you to you for joining us wherever you are, whether you're in Sligo or Edinburgh like Nadine or Wigtown or Creetown or wherever. We would love to hear. If you're if you're tuning in out there, do let us know. Uh, give us a tweet, Dora, or drop us a Facebook line at Wigtown Bookfest. And we hope very much that we will have you join us again next week. But for now, till then, take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>